everybody. Good morning. Um, I have a proposal for all we probably should take a quick vote on. Uh, I propose that we, at least here in the Woodbury Church of Christ, at least this space, maybe the acreage here, we do away with daylight saving time. Is that all right? Let's do it. I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. I'm not a farmer, so maybe that's, pro- that's probably why. Um, those of you that uh, you know, work in agriculture, I'm sure it's very important. We, uh, we want to talk about something this morning that I think I'm pretty excited about. I think we're going to be talking about it for the next few weeks. But first of all, what I want to talk about as we start this off is the idea, the, the concept of wonder. It's in our title, but the concept of wonder. Um, I've never been to the Grand Canyon. Have any of you been to the Grand Canyon? I have heard that as you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and look across, you have this like experience of I guess wonder is probably the best way to put it. Like, wow, this is incredible. It's so much more amazing. I saw it once from an airplane as we were flying over and the pilot came on the intercom and said, if you look out your left window, you can see the Grand Canyon. I looked out and I'm like, oh, it's a big hole in the ground. It wasn't wonderful from 30,000 feet, but I'm her- I've heard that if you stand on the edge and look out, it's pretty amazing, right? Is that true? Pretty amazing. Um, how, about, how about weddings? Uh, some of you love weddings. Some of us are not as enthralled by weddings, but there's parts of it that we, that we like. Uh, but, you know, the part where uh, everybody has to rise, they play the music, here comes the bride, and she walks in, and everybody's staring at the bride, and she looks beautiful, and, you know, mom's crying, grandma's crying, grandpa's crying, everybody's crying. And uh, you, you watch the bride come in, but how many of you do this when the bride walks in? How many of you take a look at the bride, and you're like, oh, she looks great. But then you turn and you look at the groom because you want to see whether or not he is having the right emotional response to this situation, right? You want to know whether or not he is captivated by this beautiful bride that is walking down the aisle and like pretty much anything less than like a trembling lip is not going to do it for you. You need to see tears. You need to see emotion. You need to see something. If you're like, this guy is just standing there stone-faced, you know, you're probably like during that objection time, you're going to be like, excuse me, uh, preacher, he did not have the correct response to the bride that he should have. I object to this wedding. But, but you, want the, you want the groom to, to see, to be captivated, to, to feel like that, that sense of awe and wonder. Star Wars just came out uh, with a new movie. That felt like a little bit of a left turn, didn't it? Um, and the end of the most recent Star Wars movie, which was called Rogue One, was tailor-made for me. It was tailor-made for me. Because when they made that movie, they thought about all the six-year-old little boys in 1983 who wanted to be Luke Skywalker, and they made that movie for us. That's who they made it for. And when you get to the end of Rogue One, there is this religious experience where you're like in awe. It is wonder. Now, I know you're like, wait, Grand Canyon, Bride, Star Wars, those three are not in the same category. I'm just trying to cast a wide net here and like get us all on the same page because I don't know where you are emotionally this morning. So some of you may be Grand Canyon, some of you may be uh, Beautiful Bride, some of you may be Star Wars Rogue One, you know the ending that I'm talking about, like, wow, I sat in my seat, like, you could have, un- wonder, right? I, I'm sure I cried when Korean walked down the aisle too, but Star Wars, I'm telling you. 
We are starting a new series today, and it's called The Wonder of Jesus. And I just want to try to, at least for a little bit, capture that idea, what that word kind of encompasses and what that word means. And then just ask us, I know we think, or I know we know we should feel wonder about Jesus, but I don't know that we do. I know we should, but I don't know that we do feel this sense of wonder. We don't have this Grand Canyon, New Bride, Star Wars experience about Jesus. I don't think we do. I don't think we come to church expecting that. I don't think we come to church prepared for that. Maybe those few moments where you've had some sort of experience like that. Maybe it was in worship. Maybe it was an incredible sermon. Maybe it was in prayer. Maybe it was with a group of believers where you're discussing something. You just had this moment of wonder. But I don't think we come expecting that. I don't think we come prepared to to feel like that's going to be part of our experience with Jesus. But I believe that it can be. Uh, This is kind of the premise. Or or maybe I should say this. We believe that, or I believe that. Drew and I have been talking about, and he's going to kind of do his own stuff here in a few weeks. But I think this is true, and you can ask Jordan whether or not he agrees. But I think the more clearly we see Jesus, the more we will be in wonder of him. The more clearly we see Jesus, the more we'll be in wonder of him. And I think that's a good thing. Now, I was reading a book uh, that somebody gave me a few weeks ago or months ago, and it had this quote that I thought was so relevant to what we're talking about. Um, the, The quote is this, the sad truth is that Jesus, the Jesus who is so often preached today is so shallow, so small, and so uncaptivating that countless believers are enthralled with countless other things. That feels true. I don't know if it is true for you, but that sure feels true. When I experience wonder, when I think about the category of wonder, I don't necessarily think about Jesus. I don't necessarily think about God. And there are times maybe that pops into mind, but that's not like the first thing on the list for me. So we we believe the more clearly we see Jesus, the more we'll be in wonder of him. And that's kind of what Paul was talking about in Philippians 3. We're not going to spend our series in this, but I just want to just briefly talk about this for purposes of introduction uh, Philippians 3, 8, Paul says this. He says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And he says, I consider them garbage. So anything that would enthrall, that would captivate, that would cause wonder, all those things are trash compared to knowing Jesus. Now, I love that verse, but I don't know that that verse uh, lines up with our experiences. I don't know that it does. I I love the idea of like Jesus being the only thing in our lives, the only thing that captivates us, the only thing that matters. But I'm not entirely confident that that lines up with our experiences. And I want it to. I want it to for me. I want it to for us. So in this series, we're going to explore Jesus and not just like Jesus. We're going to explore the wonder of Jesus to try to like to, to, to clean off the surface and get us a better glimpse of who Jesus really was in order to have that experience and not just for experience sake so that we can be better people because i think the more we are in wonder of him the more we will be transformed by him the more we are in wonder of him the more we will be transformed by him i think that that's true I think there are people who are interested in Jesus and scholars and academics and people who are non-believers who are interested and curious about Jesus, but they're not, they're not captivated. They're not in wonder. I think Christians as followers, people who have already given their lives to this, the more we are captivated and in wonder of Jesus, the more we will uh, be transformed by him. Now, some of you are probably nervous. You're like, well, you're not going to get me to have an emotional experience. That's just not my personality. That's not who I am. It's not who this church is. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about seeing Jesus more clearly for who he really is. 
And because we see him clearly, we will naturally be in wonder. And throughout the scriptures, every time somebody saw Jesus, caught a glimpse of who Jesus really was, they were, they, they were in wonder. They thought he was amazing. They thought he was incredible. So that's what we're going to do in this series. We're going to explore Jesus as teacher, miracle worker, challenger of the status quo, servant, king, and death defier. We're going to talk about all those ideas when we talk about Jesus. So let's get started. I was talking with a group of uh, high school uh, upperclassmen, college students earlier this week and on Monday, and I posed this question to them. I said, if you could ask Jesus one question, you could just sit down with him and ask him one question, what would it be? So I want you to think about that for a second. If you could sit down with Jesus and ask him one question, what would it be? It doesn't have to be one. You can come up with a series. I don't know. Jesus probably has plenty of time for more than one question. But if you could, if you could ask him one question, what would it be? And I'm assuming some things probably start coming to your mind a little bit. You'd probably think a lot of you would have a theological question, right? You'd be like, how does this work? Why did you say this? Some of you would have like sort of a philosophical question. Why is the world this way? And what, what, where did this come from? Some of you would have a personal question because something's happened to you and it doesn't quite line up with what your idea of who God or who Jesus is. So it would be all kinds of st- stuff. The answers that I heard were, what would Jesus say about current controversies? Wouldn't that be interesting? Like, how would he deal with those things that our culture is just like torn up about? What, what would he say to those? Um, another, another question somebody posed was, what important thing would he say Christians are missing or neglecting? Oof. Yeah, you don't even want to think about that because that list could get pretty long. Uh, another question was, what would he think about us? Like me. What would Jesus think about me? What would he say about me? Because, right, didn't he have individuals... Uh, that came up to him and said, you know, like, hey, what command should I keep? And he would, like, get right to the heart of whatever they had going on in their lives. Uh, what do we do that would make Jesus turn over the tables angry? That was one of the questions. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? What do we do that makes Jesus angry? How, and this is interesting too, how would Jesus disagree with people? Probably a Facebook post. That's probably passive-aggressive Facebook post. It's probably how he would do it. But I think about this all the time. I mean, how awesome would it be just to hear Jesus address this stuff that we're dealing with every day? And some of you I know are thinking, he does. Just read the Gospels. It's all in there. Black and white. It's all there. Very, very clear. Uh, if that's true, or if that's accurate, then there are a lot of people who are reading the same thing, coming away with different conclusions. So maybe that's true. But I still would just love to hear it from Jesus, right? Sit down with Jesus, have coffee with Jesus, pose this direct question, and get an answer. That's what I would like. And I, honestly, I think about this all the time. When I find myself di- driving along and daydreaming, this is what I'm thinking about. Like, what would Jesus say about this? How would he address this? How would he approach this? What would his response be to this? I'd love it. I would, I would sit down. I would have a notebook. I would be ready to write down every syllable. I'd be like a three-year-old with the questions. Why, why, why? And every time he answered one, I'd have another one. Why this? Why that? There's so many questions I would have for Jesus. We're going to look at one particular story in the Gospels, Luke chapter 8. And we're going to try to at least, we're going to try to answer as much as possible three questions. And these are the three questions we're going to try to answer. What might it have been like to experience Jesus as a teacher? What might it have been like to experience Jesus as a teacher? Second question, why wasn't Jesus always just direct and clear? Because even his disciples got confused on many occasions. Third question, why did some people get it and other people just miss it or dismiss it? 
So those are the three questions. What might it have been like to experience Jesus as a teacher? Why wasn't Jesus always just direct and clear? Why did some people get it and other people miss or dismiss it? All right, so we're going to answer those three questions. So take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, this is a familiar passage, uh, but I want you as much as possible to just to approach this story as if you haven't heard it before, because I think there's some interesting things about this story that get overlooked when we're too familiar with it, okay? So I want you to approach this story as if you hadn't heard it before. We're going to deal with question number one. Luke chapter 8, verse 4. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. Um, and, and a lot of you know that most of the Bible, most of Jesus' teaching consists of parables, large crowds and parables. That was a lot of like Jesus' day-to-day activity. So this is a pretty typical scene. Jesus is speaking to a large crowd and he's telling a parable. Now, not everyone likes school. Not everyone likes learning. Not everyone's curious about stuff. I'm totally curious about everything all the time, but not everybody's like that. So I remember those times in my life where somebody told me something that just kind of blew my mind a little bit. Now, you remember those moments when something about the way you thought life was and the world was, was changed or challenged? You know what I'm talking about? How many of you remember when some kid, like in fifth grade, told you that the tomato was actually a fruit? You were like, wait a second here. This is it. Did my mom put you up to this? Because I like fruit. I do not like tomatoes. Like, what is going on? A little bit of a mind-blowing thing. That's a little nuts. Now, you may remember moments like that throughout your childhood. Um, And you may even remember where you were when you heard that. But did you know that according to the USDA, their watermelon is actually a vegetable? Whoa. I know. I know you're like mind blown. Now, here's the deal. I'm going to save you the trouble of looking it up. Some of you are going to do that anyway. You're going to look this up no matter what I say. But here is the actual USDA summary of their vegetable summary from from, uh, 2016 into February of 2017. So it's just barely out of date. It's not like in the last couple of weeks they like, hey, guess what? We just realized the watermelon is actually a fruit. So we're going to change it back. This is the actual thing. So jump into the next slide if you would. Look at what this says. Watermelon. That's on the list of their vegetables. Some of you are like, no, that's not right. My life is built around the fact that the watermelon is a fruit, not a vegetable. And you cannot go changing that on me. And here's the funny thing about this too. By the way, you see what also is listed in the vegetables right above it? Tomatoes. And strawberries. So just throwing this out there, some of you are like, I'm just going to totally throw you for a loop the rest of the the day. You're not going to be able to pay attention to what I have to say. By the way, now this may say more about Oklahoma than it does about uh, watermelon, but you know what the Oklahoma state vegetable is? The watermelon. What's wrong with Oklahoma, right? Something, the watermelon. I just want you to imagine for a second that you've been sitting at the feet of Jesus. And I doubt Jesus would just go around throwing facts like that out. Hey, guess what? Watermelon, fruit, vegetable. I don't think he would care about that kind of stuff. I don't think that would be it. But I imagine that as you sat at the feet of Jesus, you would have, on multiple occasions, your mind blown about the way the world is and the way the world works. Those of you that have been attending the Bible class at 9 a.m. and coming to the Sermon on the Mount class that Bruce is teaching, that was that experience. Like, hit after hit after hit. 
Jesus would say, you've heard it said. That was the common knowledge. That was the common understanding. And he would say, but I tell you. And he would just blow their minds. And usually in a way that made them like realize that they were guilty of the thing that they thought they were innocent of. He was blowing their minds constantly. That was, that was the experience of being around Jesus as a teacher. So I want you to think about your question. Think about the question that you formed that you would ask Jesus. And uh, I want to go through a couple observations about um, what it might have been like to answer this question. What it might have been like to experience Jesus as a teacher. Number one, he probably wouldn't answer your question. He probably wouldn't. You know why we know that? Because he didn't. You see it all the time in the Bible. People ran up to him with questions and he didn't answer them directly. He's like a psychiatrist. They'd be like, hey, Jesus, what's the greatest command? Um, <clears throat> why don't you tell me what you think the greatest command is? And of course, they'd be like, well, I think it's this. And you're just like, that sounds good. You've said it well. Sounds good. Perfect. Like, that's totally what he did all the time. He would answer with questions or he'd answer with stories. And they're like, what? What do you mean? I didn't even get that. In fact, to get a direct, this is true, to get a direct answer from Jesus to a question was so unusual that the book of John actually notes it when he did. The disciples actually noted, John 16, 29, if you want, want to look this up, they're like, hey, now you're answering directly and not in figures of speech. He actually, they actually wrote it down in the Gospels because it was so unusual to get a direct answer to their question. So he probably wouldn't answer your question. Secondly, he probably would get personal. You'd come up to him and you'd be like, Jesus, why did God create mosquitoes? And Jesus would be like, let me first ask you a question. All right, here we go again. And he would say, why are you so selfish? Whoa, wait a second here. How'd this become about me? Like, I was just asking a question here. Where did that come from? He would. He would, not, he would not care about your question. He would want to get to the heart of the problem, which is something inside us. Um, he would he'd probably just get personal. And that's who he was. And we wouldn't like it very much. I know we think we would like to sit down with coffee with Jesus, but you'd probably cry. <laughs> you'd probably come away crying because Jesus hurt your feelings because he got real. Thirdly, this is how it would have been like to experience Jesus. He would never align himself with a side. Just like today, they had raging cultural and religious controversies. Everyone was on one side or the other, completely polarized. It's all this, you know, uh, exact opposites throughout their society. And if you didn't agree with group A, then that meant you agreed with group B. And Jesus never once said, hey, group A is good, group B is bad. Group B is good, group A is bad. Never did that. And he had groups come up to him and try to get him to align themselves with them. And he would not. If you want to read an interesting story, a pretty funny story about this in Matthew chapter 22. The Pharisees come up to him. They're trying to t- test him. And Jesus shuts them down. And then their arch nemesis, the Sadducees, come up to him. They're like, oh, we're going to get him now. And Jesus shuts them down. And the Pharisees, still kind of recovering from their wounds a little bit, I think like, and this is all on the same day, by the way, think like, hmm, I think we got another one we can ask him. So they go back up to him and they shut him down again. And actually the Bible literally says this. From that day on, in Matthew 22, no one dared ask him any more questions. I know we would love to think that Jesus would answer our questions, but he wouldn't answer directly. He'd get personal. He wouldn't align himself with the side. And this is true. He would leave you one of three responses. He would leave you amazed. He would leave you confused. And probably more likely than not, he would leave you angry. And mostly all three, really. That's probably what would happen. He would leave you amazed, he would leave you confused, and he would leave you angry. And you're like, no, 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 
not me. I love Jesus. Yeah, but you haven't let Jesus like dig in to you and where you are. The people that interacted with him, he left them amazed. He left those crowds amazed. And then the same crowds in the book of John, he left them confused and angry. Same crowds. He'd probably leave you amazed, confused, and angry. That's what it would have been like to experience Jesus as a teacher. So let's, let's dig in a little bit deeper. Why doesn't Jesus get direct with us? Why doesn't Jesus get direct? Why, why wasn't he always direct and clear? Because Jesus could have communicated only in commands and rules. The whole Bible could just be a book of commands. He could have done that, and yet he told stories. Why did he do that? Because commands would be so much more helpful. One of the questions the kids asked about what they would ask about Jesus is they would say, why didn't you give us rules? Like, why did you just give us stories and, and principles and parables? And some of you have kind of an answer for that. But sometimes wouldn't it be nice just to know exactly where the line is? Just so you know exactly what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do? He could have been painfully clear, yet he wasn't. Now, what we do is every time somebody breaks a rule in our society, we create a new rule around it. Like, or not even a rule. Every time somebody does something beyond the pale, beyond the scope of what we think is acceptable behavior in, in society, we create a rule around it. When, so we make a sign and we put signs up all over. For instance, signs like this. Now, that sign exists. Not because someone was just sitting around one day thinking, hmm, what sign should we put up? But because somebody licked the window. Now, that leads to a whole other question, right? Why? But somebody did that, and so they felt like they had to create a sign for it. I guess now we have to have a new policy. No licking windows now. I guess that's what we've come to as a society. Here's another one I'll show you. And here's why that's important. And if you're listening online later to this, you're just wondering, what are we looking at? I'm not going to tell you. You should come to church. But here's why... Here's why this is important, because we will even do things that are self-destructive that we should have rules for. And so somebody has to come along and say, stop hurting yourself. Don't hurt yourself. And we've got to create a sign for it. Um, sometimes it just feels like just absolute hundred. It's not just like weird behavior, like licking windows or, or behavior like this. Sometimes it's just like people just seem senseless and we need rules to just, just for common sense, right? Like this next one. This says, if you can't read it, it's a piece of clothing. It's a tag on the back of clothing. It says, wash inside out. Remove child before washing. To be honest, I don't know that that's very good advice. I think you probably should keep the child in there because the child needs washing as well. If the shirt needs washing, child needs washing. Let's just all do this at the same time. And it just feels like common sense, right? It feels like that rule shouldn't need to exist. Why is that tag on there? Was that tag on there because somebody at this company was sitting around thinking, oh, we need some space. What should we fill this space with? No, it's on there because evidently somebody went to the company and said, hey, you didn't tell me I should take my kid out when I put this in the laundry and now my kid's all dizzy from the washing machine. What do I do? Take your kid out before you wash the shirt. Like, it's a little crazy. It's a little crazy. And when we can't get people to comply with the rules, instead of just saying, like, let's figure some other approach, we just double down on the rules like this next slide. I love this. Please never, ever, 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 never, 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 ever, ever, ever park here. That's how we approach that. Because we are a society that likes to have these clear, absolute guidelines. Why didn't Jesus do that? Why didn't he just anticipate everything everybody's going to do? You know, the Bible could say, don't lick the windows. Don't sit on fences with spiky things. Don't wash your kids in the, in, the, in, the, in the washing machine. Why didn't Jesus do that? 
He could have done that. He could have given us a rule book with all those rules in it. Why didn't he? I want you to pretend you've never heard the story in Luke 8 before. Just pretend you've never heard it. And, uh, and just, just imagine with me for a second what this was like. All right, in Luke chapter 8, we, we know that Jesus is about, he's got this big crowd and he's about to tell this parable. Just imagine, you've got a friend maybe, and you've heard about this Jesus, or maybe you've even heard him teach. And so you go up to this friend and you say, you have got to hear this Jesus teach. He is incredible. He will blow your mind. Maybe you've heard him teach the Sermon on the Mount and you're just like telling your buddies, your friends, your neighbors, he's going to be in town. We have got to go here. Come with me. He will change your life. His teaching is so good. It's just unbelievable. It's next level. The rabbis don't have anything on him. You've got to come here, Jesus. Imagine you had sold Jesus like that to a friend, okay? So you're dragging this friend to hear Jesus, all these people from town after town are coming and you brought your friend along to hear this amazing rabbi, this amazing teacher that is just blowing everybody's minds right and left. And this is what he says. Verse five, a farmer went out to sow his seed and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds ate it up. Now your friend is probably looking at you like, all right, that's not that exciting. And you're like, hold on. He'll get to the point. Just wait. And verse six, some fell on rocky ground. And you're thinking, all right, here we go. We're getting somewhere now. Some fell on rocky ground. Remember, you've never heard this teaching before. You have no idea what he's talking about. Some fell on rocky ground. And when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. And your friend's like, all right, I'm still gardening. I, what, what is this? Are you telling me he's a great teacher about gardening? Because yeah, that's good. That's wonderful. And you're like, hold on. He'll get to the good stuff in a second. Hold on. Verse seven. Other seed fell among thorns. And you're thinking, okay, here we go. Jesus is really going to bring it now. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and it yielded a crop a hundred times more than what was sown. And then listen to this. When he said this, he called out. The word called is actually the word yelled. It's the same thing he did on the cross. He called out. So he tells this story about agriculture. And then he calls out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that was it. That's the whole sermon. That's it. There's no explanation. There's nothing. And you brought your friend from town. You've like, you got to take off work. You got to hear this guy. And your friend is looking at you like, are you nuts? He told us how plants work. Thanks a lot for that. And then he yelled at us at the end. What was that about? That's it. There's no more explanation to this story. We only know that this story resolves itself because we know what happens later. But for this giant crowd, that was all they heard. That was it. And Jesus walks away with his disciples. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. See you guys. If, listen, listen. <laughs> if I got up and described how basic gardening works, talk for 20 minutes about how basic gardening, planting, stuff like that, and then sit down, you'd have two thoughts. Number one would be, that was a pretty short sermon for Patrick. <laughs> Number two would be, that was bizarre. There was no Bible. There was no God. There was no nothing. That was it. And that's exactly what his disciples were thinking. Like, what in the world was that? And they took Jesus aside, verse 9, his disciples. And again, the Bible tones down the language. This word is, is more along the lines of interrogate than it is asked. And it's, you know it's Peter, right? You know it's him because of his personality. He's like, Jesus, what in the world? What was that? 
Why did you, what, what, is this, what, did that, what was that supposed to mean? You have this big crowd, everybody's listening to you, everybody's you know, sitting on pins and needles waiting for you to share some big truth bomb and you tell them a story about gardening. What was that? This is not for the whole crowd. This is just for his disciples. The whole crowd is walking away thinking, I don't know, that was weird. And this is what he says. He says the knowledge of the secrets or mysteries, probably a better translation, of the kingdom of God have been given to you, disciples. But to others, I speak in parables so that, listen to this, this is his explanation for being so weird. Though seeing, they may not see. Though hearing, they may not understand. That did not clear anything up. The disciples are like, wait a second, hold on. You're, you want to teach so that people don't get it. Is that what you're saying? That sounds like what he's saying. You want to teach so people don't get it. He's got an explanation, but this is a strange scenario. This is a strange situation. Why not be direct? Why not be direct? Why not just tell us what it is, what he wants? Let me give you real, three reasons real quickly to answer this second question that we're talking about. Number one is here's why he's not direct. It's because we get pretty creative when it comes to obedience. If God gave us a line, we'd figure out how to technically follow it, but not really follow it. I pulled up into my driveway the other day, and uh, my two children were in the car in the driveway. Neither of them are of driving age. They're the two youngest. And they're in the car, they're in the, the car in the driveway. So I pull up. Well, this is a strange scene. I open the door. What are you guys doing? Mom told us to go outside. Okay, I, I guess. Technically, you're outside. I don't think this is what she had in mind. I'm not sure. I mean, I guess technically you're outside, but you're inside the car it's okay. We told mom it's okay. So it's fine. We're outside. Have you parents ever told your kids to go outside? And they, you know, they don't want to for whatever reason. We're outside. Uh, not technically. I don't... Uh, well, you found a gray area there, kids. I think... Isn't that what we would do if Jesus gave us a rule? Well, technically, Jesus, we're not breaking your rule. But we would be. We get pretty creatively obedient. Secondly, Jesus doesn't want to be used for our purposes or agendas. He doesn't want to be used for our purposes or agendas. You know what I would do if I got specific answers to my questions about Jesus? You know what I would do? I'm just confessing here. I would go right up to those people that disagree with me, and I'd be like, ha, boom, in your face. Jesus agrees with me. Hashtag debate over. I win. That's what I would do. I'm not trying to like be funny. I'm trying to tell you that's exactly what I'd do. I'd find everybody who ever disagreed with me about a position I took relative to, to theology or religion. I'd be like, see, gotcha. Jesus is on my side. And Jesus does not want to be used like that. He doesn't want to be used as a tool to hurt other people. Because even if I was right, I would still be wrong. Thirdly, and this is probably the most important, this is why Jesus doesn't answer questions directly, is that information itself doesn't really transform. How many times has your dentist told you to floss daily, multiple times a day? And you're like, your dentist asks you, how many times do you floss a week? And you're like, mm-hmm. sometimes. All right, I flossed once this month. Is that good enough? You know, information doesn't really transform. So to be a disciple isn't simply about getting more information, getting more teaching from Jesus, but being receptive to formation. And if a person isn't open to formation by God, then all the information in the world won't do them any good. Let's get to our third question as we wrap up this morning. And this is the most important thing because this deals with us and where we are. Why did some people get it and others miss it or dismiss it? 
What was the difference between people that got Jesus and understood what he was doing and understood what he wanted in the world and the people that missed it? Um, As someone who comes up pretty regularly to talk in front of people, not just this crowd, other crowds, different places, uh, as a speaker, and I think Jordan would attest to this as well, you can tell when the audience is with you and when the audience is not. Like, we can tell. I know you think, like, I'm being sneaky, just scrolling through Facebook. Nobody knows. We can tell, right? We can see you. Your face is lighted up by the screen that you're looking at. Like, there's a glow, and it's not just health. It's your, it's your phone that you're scrolling through. Like, you don't know that I'm not just looking at the Bible. You don't read that fast. Come on, please. We can tell when people are engaged. We can tell when, we can tell when people disagree with the sermon too, right? There's a body language that says, I disagree. And your face, you don't even realize you're doing it. Your face gets a little scrunched up. Like, like you just ate something you didn't like. I don't agree with what he's saying. And your arms do this. It's not just that you're cold. It's that like, it's that whole thing. Like some of you are like, whoa, uh, my arms are crossed. Whoa, ah, sorry, Pat. I don't know what to do with my arms now. What do I do? You know, but we can tell. We, we, we can tell when, when the audience is with us and when you're not. We, 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 we're, we can tell. Jesus taught, this is important. Jesus taught in a way that required something of the hearer to get it. Jesus taught in a way that required something of the person listening to get it. In Luke chapter 8, verse 11, you can jump over there if you want to. Luke chapter 8, verse 11. He tells them the rest of this story. There's different types of soil, and you could read that. He explains to the disciples this story. But verse 15, verse 15 is where we want to look at. He says this fourth type of soil. This is the difference between people who get it and people who don't. The seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. A noble and good heart. This is the difference between people who get it and people who don't. This is the one difference. Spirituality, your relationship with God cannot be compelled. It cannot be compelled by another party. It has to be driven by you. No, like, like even if I was the greatest preacher in the world, I could not make you be compelled to love Christ or have a relationship with him. Parents, don't we want to do that for our children? We want to compel a relationship with Jesus. And we know at some point it's just, it's them and they've got to decide. And that's so scary and so frustrating. And you hope you've given them all the tools that they need, but we can't compel it as a preacher, as a youth minister, as a parent, we cannot compel it in anybody else. And Jesus knows that too. Not even he can compel a relationship with himself. He cannot do that because it matters that we have a heart that is receptive. It's ultimately, it all comes down to the heart. Jesus didn't want our behavior. He wanted our heart. And the difference between the people that were amazed and got it and followed and the people that dismissed and ended up killing Jesus, it was their hearts. That was the difference. It was their hearts. Because we would sit down across from, from, from Jesus with a cup of coffee and he would tell us stuff and he would get at our real stuff and we would walk away from that with a choice. Whether or not our hearts were open, open and receptive to what he had to say or whether or not we decided to shut this down. And not, we don't want to go any further. Some of you know that Jordan uh, put together a song bracket. Um, and the church has been, if you don't know about this, get on the app or Jordan can explain to you. But it's a song bracket. It's 64 songs and we're all voting on which song is going to win. Kind of a March Madness of songs. You guys know, some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you have no clue. That's fine. I already know what song is going to win. I already know what song is going to win for me. Maybe not for you. And it's a song called Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. 
That's the song that's going to win. And I think I just poisoned the well a little bit. That might be the song that wins to Jordan's like, good job, Patrick. That's the song that's, that's going to win. Spoiler alert, at least for, at least for me. Um, and, and Jordan and I like to joke a little bit because uh, I like to make fun of him that he only likes songs that were written like 13th century B.C., right? If we could all be singing Gregorian chants, Jordan would be like, that's awesome. That's the greatest thing in the world. And I basically like songs that were written in the last like 10 years, maybe even 10 minutes. Like I like, I, I like, like the newer stuff. But, but Come Thou Fount, number one favorite song in the world, and it was written in, in the 17th century. Um, and here's why I love it. Here's why I love it. It's the third stanza, and this is part of the third stanza. If you go to the next slide, it says this. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. I don't trust myself, God. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Here's the deal with our hearts. God wants our hearts. Jesus wants our hearts. All the good teaching in the world isn't going to matter. Sitting across from Jesus, from, uh, drinking coffee, asking him questions is not going to matter unless our hearts are invested in this. If our hearts aren't invested in this, then it doesn't matter. You can keep scrolling through Facebook or doing whatever you want unless your hearts are in it. And there's no one in the world who can compel you to do that. No one who can tell you what to do. This is a choice that you have to make. But unless our hearts are in this relationship with Christ, we are never going to experience the wonder of Jesus. It's never going to happen. And nobody can make you do that. Nobody can force you to do that. And some of you are thinking, my heart is not good. My heart is messed up. My heart has problems. But here's the truth. This is so important. Jesus is not looking for perfection. He is looking for access. That was, that was good. <laughs> that was better than you responded. Jesus is not looking for perfection. He is not looking for you to clean yourself up and present this perfect heart to him. He is looking for access. That is what he wants from you is here's my heart. It is imperfect. It's prone to wonder. It's got problems. Here's my heart. Take it. Please do what you want with it because I cannot be trusted. If we want to experience Jesus in any fashion, forget just teacher, forget just miracle worker, any of that. If we want to experience the wonder of Jesus, which I believe will lead us to a better relationship with him, then he has to have access to our hearts. And he's got to get through some some junk to get there for all of us. So if you want to experience Jesus for who he really is, then you have to give him your heart. Nothing else is going to do. Thank you, Travis.